wanted to dedicate this talk to Carl Walker, um, who I actually didn't realize lived into lived in the big city next to me in Springfield, Massachusetts, who killed himself. He was this totally beautiful African American young boy who was teased so much for being effeminate and um, for being queer that he wrapped the electrical cord and electrical cord around his neck and hung himself. And, um, and also to Eric Mahone in Ohio who also was teased mercilessly at school and shot himself. To, um, to of many young teenagers that um, are still taking their lives because it's so challenging to be young and queer. And I also wanted to dedicate this talk to all our queer um, community in Iran where it's illegal to be gay and where um, um, gay people are um, imprisoned in Saudi Arabia as well, in the Yemen, in um, West Africa, country Mauritania. Um, it's illegal to be gay. And um, it's said that you can be actually sentenced to death. I don't know if, um, if we are being killed for being gay or in being imprisoned. We're definitely being imprisoned for being gay in those countries. And um, And Iraq, thank you. Yeah. And Iraq, torture, torture, to death. Yeah. tortured and death. So, um, in in this theme of awakening the heart, awakening our hearts to love and to presence. I wanted to speak about the precepts and it in a way feels antithetical because love it feels so soft and sweet and um, the precepts when I first heard about them felt so rigid and I wanted to rebel against them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but actually the, um, the precepts are this expression are an incredible expression of love and caring and in acknowledging where there isn't caring in the world and where there's hatred and hatred directed towards us it is because the precepts aren't being practiced they are the very basis and ground for our well-being for our community's well-being for our individual well-being and um, let me uh, just start off with my own um, relationship to it and then I wanted to read you what the Buddha said. As, as, I, as I mentioned earlier on, I come from a family where there was a lot of violence and also growing up in South Africa under the apartheid regime, there was, there was a lot of violence there too because my parents were anti-apartheid um, activists. So they were 
um, imprisoned and there were just many police raids and um, and in the middle of the night and police storming in and flashing a flashlight in you know in my face and because they thought that my parents were hiding dynamite under my bed mm. and um, so <coughs> violence externally and violence internally and I acknowledge that I acted that violence out unconsciously in my family and also outside of myself and one of the first things I did that I remember clearly was stealing a, it was in my early femme days, a pink pearl necklace <laughs> from um, <laughs> two woman haberdasheries in Johannesburg. And, and now in telling you, I feel so remorseful because it was a small store, they were older women, and I'm sure they were just making it. And I stole this necklace and they actually, because my mom had gone to buy something, I called my mother up and asked her if I had taken the necklace. And she came to me and I, I was so nervous about her finding it that I put it in the garbage can. And so never even wore it or saw it because it was taken away as trash. Um, so I stole and when I first came in 1979 to my uh, first meditation retreat, I um, I thought it was really horrible and hard and vowed I would never um, go again. And um, if I hadn't gone down with my friend Helen sitting over there, I would have left before it had ended. But luckily for me, it was a 12-hour drive and I wasn't in my own car. And so I didn't leave early. And something, um, I, I was some somehow hooked against what I wanted <laughs> and I came down for another retreat and on my fourth retreat the doors opened and I felt a profound connection to life, a, a, a deep opening where there was no obstacle and no limit to the pervasiveness of presence and I never, I never thought in the struggle of m living inside of my mind and my body that something like that was possible and so I realized this is my path if this is possible it's my path this is what I want to do and so I, I started to take <coughs> meditation seriously and I, I never included the precepts in that practice and so even though I had experienced this profound opening and had decided to dedicate myself to the Dharma, one day when I was living in Mendocino, I happened to um, want a hairbrush and went to the, I forget what you have on the West Coast now, um, not CVS. Or, uh, what? Walgreens? Walgreens, something like that. I went to a Walgreens. It wasn't Walgreens, but it was something like that. And I saw this lovely bristle, ball bristle hairbrush, wooden. It was really nice. And I just took it. And I and the field, the field of 
my understanding at that point was that corporations were stealing from us and um, that they were imperialists and that it was really fine for me to take um, back a little bit of the profits they were making off us. And so I took the brush and put it in my handbag. And the, the, the not the guard, but the whoever it is, saw, saw me, got me outside of the store and said, we saw you shoplifting. And um, they arrested me. And I, I had a green card, but not citizenship. And so they could have, and m maybe were likely to um, put me on a plane back to England. And at this point, the Dharma and my, my teacher were central in my life, and my whole life was here, and I didn't want to leave. So um, I made a deal with the great universe, and I said, I will not steal and abide by the precepts if you don't send me back to England. So it was it was a bargain. It what didn't come out of it didn't come out of any great wisdom, I have to say. But I I, I kept to that commitment of not stealing and um, of beginning to learn and look at well what is non-harming and and. How can it impact my practice? It was a great surprise to me. It really was, given that um, particular philos philosophical perspective I had, that actually my meditation practice changed because I started keeping the precepts. I, not I, noticed, uh, I noticed a greater strength of mind that that there was that there was more spaciousness and more capacity to be present with myself and to hold through difficulties so i um i speak from personal experience in saying that i think the precepts are a really important and fundamental part of our practice and just for those of us who knew here and might not know the first um, precept, which is not a commandment but an invitation to training, is to refrain from harming. And the second is to refrain from stealing, from taking what is not freely offered. And the third is to refrain from harming through our sexual expression. And the fourth is to refrain from harming through our speech. <coughs> and the fifth is to refrain from heedlessness, from losing our balance and perspective through the use of intoxicants and mind-altering substances. Those were the precepts that we took earlier on. So let me, um, let me read to you what um, the Buddha says about the precepts. It, there are community of practitioners, eight streams of merit, streams of the wholesome nourishment of happiness that are heavenly ripening in happiness conducive to heaven and that lead to whatever is wished for loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness and what are the eight here a noble disciple has gone for refuge to the buddha this is the first stream of merit stream of wholesome nourishment 
of happiness that is heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and that leads to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. Further, a noble disciple has gone for refuge to the Dharma, and this is the second stream of merit. Further, a noble disciple has gone for refuge to the Sangha, and this is the third stream of merit. There are further practitioners, these five gifts, pristine, of long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, and never before adulterated, that are not being adulterated, and that will not be adulterated, and, um, and are not despised by the wise ones. And what are these five? Here, practitioners, a noble disciple gives up the destruction of life and abstains from it. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, she or he, or neither she or he, will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the first of those great gifts and the fourth stream of merit. Further, a noble disciple gives up taking what is not given and abstains from it. By abstaining from taking what is not given, we give to immeasurable beings freedom from fear. This is the second of those great gifts and the fifth stream of merit. Further, a disciple gives up sexual misconduct and abstains from it. By abstaining from harming through sexual expression, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear. Further, a noble disciple gives up false speech and abstains from it. By abstaining from false speech, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear. And further, a noble disciple refrains from harming through the use of wines, liquors, and intoxicants. By abstaining from harming, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, she, he, or neither she or he, I'm adding on here, will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the fifth of the great gifts and the eighth stream of merit. These monks, nuns, and community of practitioners are the eight streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, nourishments of happiness, which are heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and which lead to whatever is wished for, loved, and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. So the Buddha is so clear that um, this practicing of non-harming is the basis of um, our happiness, and also is the basis of safe community, that we can't actually practice unless we give each other this kind of safety. And um, 
you know, just to acknowledge again the reality of the pain that we carry as a community being queer by trans because we don't have safety and the ways, the ways that has profoundly impacted those two young boys. Michael Jackson not coming out for hiding in the closet and so many, many more of our community contracting and hiding out of fear. As Jews, as, as people of color, that there are so many ways we are targeted because the precept of non-harming is not taken as a guideline. And it's so easy to put it out on others. And here we have the opportunity of really acknowledging the places where we move towards harm. And through that acknowledgement, through that honesty, taking the precept. So, um, um, one of the blessings of taking these precepts is that invitation to honesty and um, and I speak about that because I just saw recently the movie Revolutionary Road. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's really an excellent movie. And um, the setup is that there, uh, there's a white um, straight woman, Kate, Kate Hudson, was it? No, not Kate Winslet. 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 And, um, DiCaprio, Leonard DiCaprio, and they um, uh, uh, fall in love and feel this um, possibility in falling in love with each other of becoming awake. That's really what they most wanted is to awaken. And they um, fall in love and it turns out we learn subsequently that um, she's pregnant and so they feel like they need to get a house and to settle down and he needs to support her and the family and takes a job in, um, in an insurance agency, I think it is, or no, something, he sells something and he hates his job. And she's taking out the garbage and they've sort of settled down into this white suburbia of the 50s. And um, it really touched me viscerally because when I first came to this country and I was searching myself to awaken, but I didn't know that at the time, and I was hitching, this is in 1973, I was hitching, I was hitching down the um, coast on the east coast and landed in Florida and needed some money and so I worked as a housemaid for a wealthy couple in Florida and we were in the suburbs you there was no bus there was no train you had to have a car which I didn't have and everyone kind of lived inside it wasn't like you were outside I recently came back from Brazil and one of the most beautiful things about Brazil is that everyone lived outside. You could feel the vibrancy of our life living in just even though you might not know each other but because we were all hanging outside because most of the houses weren't that great to be living in inside unless you happen to have a lot of money so we were all outside on the streets and it was so beautiful and in the suburb 
no one was out on the streets unless they were mowing their lawn. And it wasn't even them mowing their lawn, it was the, the Chicanas and, and um, people from Central America mostly mowing the lawn or Cuba. And so we were inside and I could feel this, I could feel the, the imprisonment. I felt imprisoned in the life there, um, living there. And, um, and she did too. She felt imprisoned and he felt imprisoned. And so she said to him, let's go to Paris. You know, let's give this up and let's go to Paris. I want to be alive. And he said, you know, I won't be able to find work. And she said, I can, I can find work. They, you earn a lot of money being a secretary in Paris. I'll support us. And you can have time to explore what you really want to do. And so he says yes, and she gets the ticket, and they're so excited, and they tell their friends, and their friends are like, we can't believe you're doing that. Really? You're really going to Paris? And they're like, yeah, we, you know, we really want to explore and going on an adventure. And um, he, he, he writes something off the cuff, because he knows he's leaving for a report um, at his work. And apparently a big, a big manager of the firm um, is very impressed and comes to him and says, you know, that's really impressive and I think you would be a really good team member. And he, he eventually gathers up enough courage to say to this guy, you know, I'm thinking of leaving. And this guy says to him, you know, we, we don't get many chances in our life and this might be your only chance. And, and Think of how proud your father would be of you if you stayed and took this job. And I'm, I'm speaking in so much detail about this movie <laughs> <laughs> because it, it is so seductive. It is so seductive to find ourselves behaving in ways that are expected when they are actually harmful for us and break the precept of non-harming. That, that, that way in which we just slide into trying to fit rather than being authentic, the ways where we don't come out when we could, and I'm not saying it's always good to come out all the time, but sometimes there are times when we could when we don't. You know, or times when we could make a stand where we don't make a stand. And it's this, this modeling, this, this modeling that this culture has given us of how, of, of prescriptions of how we think we should be as, as men, as women, even as queer men and women, as trans, that, that there is this insidious um, seduction into doing what is expected of us when it goes against awakening. And so he, he, he goes along with this guy. You can see in his eyes that he's being seduced into taking the job. And um, he, he says to, um, he, he, she, she confronts him on it later. She finds out and she confronts him and they have a kind of a row and then he goes into the cupboard and he sees that she has this douche and that she um, 
is planning to give herself an abortion because she's 12 weeks pregnant and he's furious with her you know and says you're crazy what kind of woman are you who would want to abort you know you're sick you need to see a psychiatrist or something like that and she so wanted her freedom and knew that having another child was going to make it more difficult that she wanted to abort they had this huge row and um, and the out I won't tell you the outcome in case you want to see it actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, they, uh, basically, there's a way in which they both give up that thirst for awakening. And what strikes me about it in terms of non-harming and keeping the precepts, what strikes me most is the ways that we don't share with each other vulnerably what our process was. He didn't come to her and say, I'm really struggling. I'm feeling this, this, you know, that perhaps I'll never have a chance to make it in the straight world. And that maybe my dad would be proud of me. And, you know, what do you think? And she didn't say to him, I am so thirsty for a new life. I don't think I can bear to have another child. What do you think? Is that crazy? And so, and I say that because in contemplating harming, it actually feels like one of the greatest harms we do ourselves is the way we defend ourselves and the way we are not honest and truthful and vulnerable with each other. And now I'm not just talking about 50s or a movie. Just last weekend I was teaching in Portland and, and it was a retreat and we had a question and answer period and I said, you know, so what's going on? And the questions were kind of intellectual questions and that's fine, I answered them. And then afterwards three people came to me and said, I have to leave because I'm having such a hard time. And I say that because I think more than any other country in the world is this ethic here that we have to do it by ourselves. That it's not okay to be honest and to share what's truly going on with us. It's not okay to do that in our communities and it's not okay to do that really in our relationships to really be vulnerable and to say, could you help me, honey? I'm having a hard time. And I really need your support. I don't know what's going on, but I'm feeling as though I'm sinking under a hundred thousand pound weight, or I, I'm feeling so seduced by this job, or whatever it is. I'm feeling inadequate on my, in my deepest level as your partner or lover or in my job and would you be willing to just hear what's going on for me? Because when we're willing to be vulnerable and to be truthful and to be honest, we create the conditions for that precept to be upheld of non-harming, that, that really basic precept of supporting our dignity, 
of awakening to love, of being fearless in love, of taking a stand for love, of saying, wow, is my life worth anything if I'm not taking a stand for love? And can I take a stand for love if I'm also defending myself? You know, and out, out of that, out of that, that stand, actually all the other precepts follow. So, you know, just for example, the ways we use sex, not to open our hearts, but actually to support our defendedness, or the ways we use other intoxicants, you know, as, a, as, as to defend ourselves, to, to continue to cover up the vulnerability of living and it is kind of excruciating it is I, you know <laughs> we acknowledge it together it's excruciating to be alive and to live with an undefended heart you know and that doesn't mean that we we don't respect when we need to set boundaries and boundaries are really important but it does mean not to move into old defenses and into old expectations and ways of doing things when they aren't really part of our path of awakening. So um, I um, I wanted to I wanted to read um, what Thomas Merton said. He said, finally, in our vision of creation. As God's gift of love, we also find that all beings are created in a single communion of love. When we say that all creatures are created in communion with each other, we are not speaking of a sentiment, but of a fundamental disposition of being for others. We exist for the benefit of others. As as Thomas Merton says, all creatures are created free in order to give themselves to others. Love is the heart and the true center of that creative dynamism, which we call life. Love is life itself in a state of maturity and perfection. And that maturity and perfection, that awakening to love rests on this excruciating commitment to be honest and to be open, to share with each other what's truly going on, to be vulnerable. And part of the reason that those two kids killed themselves is because there wasn't an environment in their homes where they could be that vulnerable where they, they didn't share what was going on to the level that precipitated that kind of harming. So we're doing it not just for ourselves, but we're doing it for each other. By doing it with each other, we create an environment of safety for other people to do it and for other people to really share what's going on. I just um, uh, um, actually I won't go into that. <laughs> so, 
so um, non-harming, not to take life. Uh, the, uh, not to take life is the most um, basic of that commitment. And um, as small as not taking the life of mosquitoes or flies, if, um, unless they are uh, carrying disease, and then I, I, I guess then we do. Um, <laughs> so non-harming. The uh, next, the next precept is to not take what is not given. And I was thinking about this a lot, and thinking about it especially because of my own my own background and heritage. Um, of what of actually when we talk about not taking what is uh, what is not freely offered looking at our relationship to things because it really invites that what is our relationship to things because if we if we acknowledge that there is a relationship to what we hold i think it changes our our um um how we hold this precept and so i wanted to read this um uh, it's a woman who has multiple sclerosis. Since I cannot clean my own house, it has become to some extent no longer my own house. It has slipped from my control. A very good thing, since Celia takes far better care of it than I would have done even in the days when my arms and legs still worked. She cleans between all the buttons on the antiquated push-button stove so that our fingers no longer stick and release with a schloop every time we want to go from hot to warm. She keeps the sliding glass door so clean that after my daughter walked through and shattered it, we had to paste a hedgehog decal onto the new one to ward off your further incursions. But she does not know where things belong, like the fish-shaped soup tureen on the sideboard. Although this should be placed sideways, she invariably points its pouty face out into the room. At first, I turn it back after she left. Later, when I got too weak, I'd simply look at it and fret at length. <laughs> and then insight struck. Oh, wait a minute. Whose fish is this anyway? It's mine, I know. When my friend Molly left Tucson, she gave it to me to hold until her return. But she liked Seattle better, and I've got the fish by default. But it's Celia's fish too. She's the one who takes care of it, and apparently it should stare out at us brutally, even though I think it looks dopey that way. <laughs> to relinquish not merely control, but the claim to control, permitting someone to do what she does best in the way she chooses to do it, and viewing the outcome as collaborative rather than right or wrong balances a relationship that otherwise might be skewered by issues of ownership or prerogative. Celia and I have a hollow cream-colored stoneware fish. If you want to help us with its upkeep, you may have it too. If no one drops it, it will outlast both Celia and me. One day, however, it's bound to be smashed and then no one will have it. Things come to us, we cherish them for a while, and then they or we are gone. 
When Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon, it is not the thingness of our possessions he repudiates, but, putting, but our relationship to them. The way that instead of simply tending them and putting them to use, we grasp them with knuckles turned white, clasp them against our chests, invest them with the power to represent our worth. And it reminds me of uh, another time I was going down to Dharmadena, the meditation center where my teacher Ruth lives, and I was driving this very old Impala, and it broke down. And I had um, I had been training with a part Native American Indian teacher called Evelyn Eaton, and she had said the same thing, which is that everything is imbued with the spirit when we come into relationship with it, when we see it as alive and real, and that it's that we're not owning it, but relating to it as hunger in a way. And so, um, so as here we are in the middle of the road, it was totally deserted, it was in, in the middle of the desert, and here's this car, and that teaching just um, went through me, and I thought, no harm, I'll pray to its spirit. And so, um, because I was training with Evelyn, I had a rattle and I had some sage. Mm -hmm. and, and so, on the side of uh, five, I'm saging <laughs> the car and rattling and calling the spirit of the car to come back into balance again. <laughs> now, it might have been it just needed a rest or the temperature needed to cool down, but it did start again. <laughs> and it also reminds me of Achin Cha. And Achin Cha had a favorite cup and he used to drink his tea out of it. And he said, you know, this is a cup that is my favorite cup and I love it. And I love it because I know that I don't own it. It might crack, it might break at any point, but it is, it is a, a spirit the spirit of a cup that I relate to. In that, when we come into that kind of honoring, that whatever we're, we have, we're relating to with that kind of respect and honoring, that becomes the basis for then all of us being able to respect and honor what each of us has because it's held in this relationship. Of, um, of, of acknowledgement and also of balance because if we really are relating to the deep spirit of everything we hold, all the material possessions we hold, how many material possessions can we hold and have that relationship to? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, but I, you know, I, even in my somewhat scanty cupboard, I have dresses you know, that honestly don't, when I look at it, I don't feel an awakened relationship. It's <laughs> 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 like, can I let it go? Because it isn't serving that awakening, you know? So, 
Um, that's a very a radical interpretation of <laughs> not taking what is not really offered. I think, I think it's, um, I think it's really important, and and I and I want to honor deeply that commitment. It's um, as I have refrained, and I haven't stolen anything, mm-hmm. uh, um, and and feel deeply connected to respect that relationship that we have. I want to um, honor again what's happened not only in Bhopal but in the Amazon and in so many places where corporations have come in and taken what is not freely offered, have taken waters away from indigenous peoples, have taken um, the purity of the rivers and the purity of the earth away by dumping poisons have taken the livelihood and the good health away from people um, when it's not been freely offered. It is endemic in our culture what's going on and so to take this precept is radical because it goes against that stream and it is saying awakening and life is my awakening and your awakening, my life and your life, the dignity of that is of the utmost important and that I can't find love, I can't find that awakened heart unless I do the work of upholding this precept. And that's what the Buddha was saying, that awakening doesn't happen unless we uphold the integrity of um, these precepts. So then um, going on to um, the precept of uh, non-harming through our sexuality. Um, uh, I th- the, the first one that comes to me is the ways that we objectify our own bodies and each other's bodies and divorce how our bodies look, how our faces look from who we are and the beauty we are. So just to name that, I watch myself fall into that trap over and over you know I just I pick up my arm and the skin is hanging now and it's just really wrinkled and I <laughs> I was having dinner with this young woman a couple of weeks ago and she um, she's in her 30s and she's wearing this very low cut shirt and I don't usually do this but my eyes were like <laughs> magnetized to her breasts, you know. I could not take my eyes away from her breasts. I was like, Arena, she's the daughter of a friend of mine. You know? <laughs> it, was, it was so funny. And you know... <laughs> so... To, so to acknowledge that and to somehow acknowledge also the, the field that that is, that that is in and that aging, you know, the beauty of our wrinkles because every wrinkle holds a story. It holds a precept broken and regained, mm-hmm. you know, and the strength of that to really honor what or the, the aging process and how our bodies express that, as well as to honor the beauty of our youth. So um, I, I happened to read that, oh, I've forgotten the name of the club, uh, 
There was a bondage S and M club. I'm trying to remember what it was called. Um, it was called um, um, uh, Salon Kitty. Salon Kitty, and um, they had they had guidelines. They have guidelines of non-harming, which is to ask for the consent of your partner to make sure that that consent <coughs> continues through the sexual act, to um, make sure that in, in the act that you are caring for your partner. And I felt so touched by that, that in the different expressions, because our community has different expressions of sexuality, and, the, and there are many, a great variation of expressions, that call of respect for our partners, for caring for our partners, for making sure there's real consent with our partners, and real knowledge, you know, if, if we are positive, um, that, that there is that caring uh, is just profoundly beautiful and, and a great gift. Uh, um, well, I could say a lot more about it, but it's 4.30. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, um, uh, I, I won't uh, quickly have a right speech and the uh, beauty of being honest and um, not lying. And um, Finally, to acknowledge the blessing of keeping the intoxicants that we take in our body in balance. I was in Sydney for the Gay Pride March a couple of years ago, and I was so sad to see how many people at the end of the march were lying drunk on the side of the road. And that was, that was a huge part of the culture of the Gay Pride March in Sydney. And um, I was at a celebration in Castro um, last year, and that you know the predominant experience again, that the the infusion of the atmosphere was around alcohol and how much alcohol was being drunk. I personally think it's okay to have a glass of wine or a beer. There's some of us who don't. I, you know, it, it feels like it, it 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 actually serves me, and. Mm -hmm we as a community can make a commitment to relating to each other without that much alcohol. Because without it, we don't uncover our hearts. And again, if we really want to live in love, it means it can't be, our relatedness to ourselves and to each other can't be through as much alcohol as happens in so many parts of our community. So we can speak out around that and, and challenge each other around that. I want to, um, I want to um, end by reading this uh, invitation that I know many of you have heard already, but it's that invitation to um, the courage to live alive and awake. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. 
I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, or to remember the limitations of being human. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it's not pretty every day, and if you can source your life from the great presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon. It doesn't interest me to know where you live and how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done. It doesn't interest me who you are, how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. I'd like you to find someone uh, that you don't know and sit across from them. Just pair up with someone that you don't know and get comfortable seating. Allow your, allow your 